0: only 007 will be replacing 009 he turned up dead in east germany
1: the west is decadent it has no stomach to risk our atomic reprisals
0: what can you tell me about the malkan Exiled napkin prince sportsman how do i get you mr bob james Bond. who is he englishman likes eggs Mr. Bond is indeed a very rare breed. Soon to be made extinct. Bring him here. So you are the mysterious octopus. And you are James Bond. 007, licensed to kill. Am I to be your target for tonight? You have a nasty habit of surviving. Get one 007. No. On the roof. You must be eliminated at once. Take her. You should be more concerned about getting out of here alive. I am more concerned about an atomic bomb in a U.S. Air Force Base. It's too late.
1: You surely can't be inviting a full-scale nuclear war. What happens when the U.S. retaliates? Against whom? of course. Follow that
0: car. Kill it! Let the sport command. <laughs> Don't mind if we start. I'll definitely have to pay the visit.
2: Hello again and welcome to another episode of Adam's Corner. I'm joined again by a former guest, both on Movie Geeks United, my former podcast, and uh, he's already been a guest on this show. So he's a returning guest. We've only been around a couple of months and he's already uh, back again, but... Uh, his initial appearance on the show at uh, when we did a an anniversary special on Psycho 2, that has proven to be a show with a lot of mileage uh, in terms of all the shows that I have put out so far. So uh, why not continue a good thing, I say. And so <laughs> we uh, we had this uh, thing that we were doing over at Movie Geeks where we would discuss a James Bond film every time an anniversary came up, and we've been doing it a think since uh, the spy who loved me
0: mm-hmm. so, i think uh, so yeah.
2: yeah we've been doing it a while so um so anyway uh, but this is uh ray morton uh author extraordinaire he if you aren't familiar with his work you should get familiar because he wrote uh, the definitive book on the cinematic history of king kong for one thing and he's done many other books as well and you can go where books are found and uh, there's a terrific book he also did on the making of Close Encounters, which we've talked about in a previous Movie Geeks United episode, but but uh, we'll we'll uh, let that stand as it is, because we want to talk tonight, or on this episode, well, I don't know if it'll be tonight when you're hearing this, but you know <laughs> what I'm saying. Uh, we're going to be talking about Octopussy, which was um, the 1983 entry in the James Bond uh, series of films. Following For Your Eyes Only, which was kind of a reset, I guess you would say, after Moonraker. So yes. it's, uh, this is kind of an, an, an interesting time in the franchise, uh, I would say. And uh, it is the 13th in the James Bond series, the, uh, the official series produced by Eon Productions and the sixth to star Roger Moore as... M16 agent James Bond, of course. So uh, we, um, I know we talked about Moonraker and, well, like I said, Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker, For Your Eyes Only. So we've talked about all of those. So we'll talk about where United Artists was. In uh, 1982, I guess, is when this would probably go before the cameras, maybe late 81. I know in 81, they were in discussions about what they were going to do, and so
1: uh, right, well, yeah. we'll get into
2: that. Yeah. But uh, financial problems at United Artists prevailed after the release of Michael Chibino's Heaven's Gate.
0: Yes. What a lovely from, event that was.
2: There you go. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. So we'll let you take it from there as we delve into the production of Octopussy.
1: There we go. Okay, yeah. So what um, uh, Heaven's Gate came out at the end of 1980 and was a legendary financial disaster. And that really put um, United Artists uh, behind the eight ball. And they were really struggling through all of 81 to sort of determine what the future of the company was going to be. And in that time period, they had already begun production and then released For Your Eyes Only. So that had come out uh, in the summer of 1981. Uh, So Octopussy was the one coming up next, and what was going to happen really depended on the fate of the studio. Eventually what happened is United Art... um, Transamerica, which is the insurance company that owned United Artists, sold it to Kirk Kerkorian, who was at that time the once and future owner of MGM. Um, he had bought MGM, sold it, bought it again, and honestly, in the whole mix of the chronology, I'm not sure where we were with all of that. But he was currently the owner of MGM. He purchased United Artists, United Artists and MGM, all through the late 60s and and mostly through the 70s. Had had a joint um, distribution deal. MGM actually distributed most of its films through United Artists because um, the, MGM had been on you know financial in financial trouble for for many many years at that point. So the irony was, United Artists was distributing MGM's films, and then MGM ended up owning United Artists. And the theory was that they probably purchased it. Um, to get the distribution outfit, and then they got the movie company along with it. Uh, and so now the question was, what were they going to do with the 007 series? Because after after The, the Man with the Golden Gun, uh, Albert Brockley and Harry Saltzman, the two guys who produced the Bond movie, split up their partnership because Harry Saltzman had run into all these financial issues. And basically, the issue was what was going to happen to his half of the Bond properties, the rights to the series and the movies and all of that. And um, what ended up happening was that United Artists purchased... Harry Saltzman's rights. So they were partners with Cubby Broccoli. Before that, United Artists was really just the distributor of the Bond films. But now they were the co-owners of them. So whatever happened to United Artists was going to affect the Bond films in a a significant way. So what had happened in the aftermath of Heaven's Gate, and that it, it, it had happened across the industry, but the way that it affected the Bond films... Basically, budgets were getting tightened because we were also in a recession at that time. And and Moonraker had cost around $32 million to make in 1979 dollars. And that was, at, in those days, astronomical. Heaven's Gate costs cost uh, 40. So Moonraker was not that far behind Heaven's Gate. The difference was Moonraker made a fortune and and Heaven's Gate obviously didn't. Um, but the idea was they couldn't keep making movies that were costing this much. There was also at that time 1941 and the Blues Brothers, and they all cost roughly the same amount. And then when Heaven's Gate came in, it it actually destroyed a studio. So at that point, they just wanted things to be uh, financially much more tight. So when they made For Your Eyes Only... Uh, Cubby Broccoli had been given a brief from United Artists that the movie had to be much smaller in scope, and the thought that was rather than keep going into big elaborate fantasy, they would go back to sort of a more basic spy story, more grounded in reality, and that was what For Your Eyes Only was, and that was a big hit. It wasn't quite as Moonraker was the biggest hit in the series, but For Your Eyes Only did very well in comparison to that so the idea originally was they wanted to basically do the same thing keep it keep it down to earth keep it realistic and and keep it fairly contained in terms of budget and um so the idea was we were basically going to be getting for your eyes only too like another spy another realistic spy thriller and i've um i've had this theory about the james bond films which is I think you can split the Bond films into two basic different categories. One is there's the fantasy Bonds with, you know, supervillains and giant technological hardware and secret hideouts and plans to destroy the world. And those, you know, the Bond films that would fit that category would be, you know, Dr. No and Goldfinger And you only live twice. And in the Roger Moore era, the spy who loved me and moonraker were certainly fantasy bond films, Um, you know, big action, colorful, but not particularly grounded and not particularly serious in respect. And then there are the more, what I call the thriller bonds. And those are the more realistic down to earth spy movies. And for your, um, from Russia with love would be the best example of that probably. And I think for your eyes only, is is another one of those i think it's quite good it's one of the better roger moore films i i might make an argument that it's the the second best after spy who loved me um and it was you know very realistic kind of thriller but the, they kind of alternated those on her Majesty's secret service again was another more grounded thriller type bond what i found unique about octopussy and i'm still not quite sure why they made this choice But in Octopussy, they mixed both versions. So half the movie is a more grounded spy thriller and the other half is an outrageous fantasy. And I'm not really sure they necessarily work together. (laughs) But but that was sort of the interesting thing about Octopussy is they took the outrageousness of Moonraker and the groundedness of For Your Eyes Only And put them together into this kind of what I think is actually one of the more unique entries in the Bond series. So that's where things stood at the time. Yeah,
2: it is a very unique entry. And I, um, you know, I had never thought about it in those terms, uh, in terms of them uh, meshing the two different types of Bond film into one. But you're exactly right now that I think about it. That's that's very uh, that's very right on the nose. I would say yeah,
1: they have. Well, they have. The, there's one plot line that is the Soviet general who's trying to basically spark a, a nuclear bomb explosion on an American air force base in Europe in order to, um, you know, to to spark the armaments so that he can lead an invasion uh, of of Western Europe, and that's a more, for the most part, grounded spy thriller. And then there's this outrageous story about jewel smuggling and, um, you know, a a female head of a giant crime organization that's uh, filled with an island filled with beautiful women. And they're all they belong to a circus. And in the end, they use circus acts to defeat the bad guys. (laughs) And you're like, well, this is nuts. okay so so you have these two different movies running. Almost alternately side by side in in the same movie, and it's 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 a bit of a head scratcher, but it makes it interesting,
2: you know. It does. You're you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, so they had a trio of writers here, uh, several who, two at least, who had were no stranger to the Bond franchise. You have Michael G. Wilson and Richard Maybaum, along with George MacDonald Fraser, who were hired to write this film based on the short stories from, uh, wasn't it a posthumous collection, I believe, of
1: uh, yeah, short by, stories? By by the end, by after Moonraker, they didn't really have any novel titles left. So there was a short story collection called For Your Eyes Only, which had a couple of different stories in it that Ian Fleming had originally written for. There was supposed to be a James Bond television series at one point, and these were basically the short um The short uh, episode ideas and so that book was for your eyes only which had that story and a story called resiko and those were put together into for your eyes only so when it came to octopussy they had a story called octopussy and then they also had a story called the property of a lady which was all about an auction um, gone awry at uh, sotheby's in london and so they basically took those two ideas and the other main idea the first writer on the project was george MacDonald fraser and he was a an english writer um who his, his most he would write his he wrote lots of things he was a newspaper man and he would write other um like sort of non-fiction books but he's most famous for having written the flashman series and flashman was uh sort of a spin-off of tom brown's school days but it was all about kind of a a scoundrelly uh, British officer who has all sorts of adventures in India and beyond during the height of the British Empire, and uh, kind of the, one of the first antiheroes. And he wrote a whole series of these, but he was so it was basically historical fiction with a satirical edge. And I'm not quite sure how he came to be the first writer on Octopussy, but one of the other key elements was they did want to set the story in India. And part of the reason for that was uh, a lot of the American film studios in the 70s, they released a lot of films in India, but you couldn't take the funds out of India. So they had all of the profits from their movies that were released uh, in that country that had to stay in that country. They were frozen. So a lot of the studios started to try to find ways to make movies in India so they could at least use the money that was being frozen there. To, they use put it to good use and then hopefully make their profits elsewhere when the movies were released. It's one of the reasons um, uh, that Close Encounters has an India scene. It's because they found a way to use some of their money um, to to at least a good purpose. So there was an idea. United Artists had a fair amount of money um, frozen in India. So that was another component was they wanted to set it there. And Frazier had written about the British empire and a lot of adventures in India. And so I think from that, he was, that was probably what attracted them to him. Uh, anyway, he was hired and he wrote the first draft of the script. And apparently from what I understand, I've never read his draft, but many of the elements did survive into the final film, but in kind of a different form, but original, they always intended that Octopussy would be the name of a female character, obviously carrying on the double entendre names like Pussy Galore and all of those <laughs> things from from diff- from the earlier Fleming's things. In in the actual story, Octopussy is the nickname of a pet octopus of the villain of the story. Um, but they they had decided early on that they would name a female character, and originally she was supposed to be the villain of the piece. And my understanding in Fraser's original script, um, she was a villain who seduced Bond. I think pretending to be a, you know, pretending to be a good guy a little bit like what they ended up doing in the world is not enough. And then they later find out that she's manipulating him. Um, I think the original idea was they were going to uh, manipulating him to take down Spectre, um, and which is a whole other controversial thing at the time. It was very unclear as to whether. Eon had the rights to use Spectre again, so eventually that idea went away. But, but again, the original idea was that Octopussy was going to be sort of a double villain. You know, you think she was a good person, she turns into a villain, and Bond would be involved with her. And for what, for many reasons, when Fraser was done with his draft, Cubby Rockley decided that he didn't like all of what was going on in there um so that he brought in richard Maybaum and michael wilson who had written the screenplay for for your eyes only michael wilson was cubby Broccoli's stepson he would eventually become the co-producer of the bond series but at that time he was the executive producer meaning he was sort of in charge of all the business arrangements and things like that and he and richard Maybaum was a veteran screenwriter and he had written most of the screenplays for the bond films um, and when he and uh, he was working with Michael Wilson on For Your Eyes Only developing it, and they just started working together and they found out that they liked working together. So they became a team. And so after Cubby decided he didn't like Fraser's script, he asked uh, Wilson and Maybaum to take a crack at it. And my understanding is what they retained is obviously they retained Octopussy. They retained uh, apparently a lot of the circus elements were in um fraser's script and a lot of obviously a lot of the indian material was in there but they reworked it around there was a scandal at the time where um i think it was Leonid brezhnev's son i believe i'm getting this right um was involved in some scandal where they were using a circus to smuggle jewels into europe into western europe and so uh maybom and And Wilson took that element and incorporated it into the screenplay. And um, so Octopussy ends up becoming, she's not really a villain. She's sort of this person who's being used by the villain because she has this circus and she's a jewel smuggler. And they sort of subvert the jewel smuggling to smuggle a nuclear bomb into, into Europe. And so she's sort of an unwitting pawn of the villain. And there's really two villains. There's a, the main villain is a character called Kamal Khan, who was played by Louis Jardin. And then the, subs, um, I don't know, secondary villain is this mad Russian general who wants to 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 blow up an American air base. And he's played by Stephen Burkhoff. And um, so Octopus is sort of this character who gets caught in the middle. And if you had a little trouble understanding how I just explained the plot you wouldn't be the only person because one of the <laughs> one of the things about Octopussy is nobody can really figure out what the movie is it's uh it's got circuses and jewel smuggling and nuclear bombs and about halfway through the film when i first saw it and even when i rewatched it the other night getting ready for this you, you at a certain point you're like i don't know what's going on i just at this point i'm just surrendering and going with it <laughs> so <laughs> but yeah that so that's how the script came to be um and uh you, so basically the final draft was written by Maybom and Wilson i'm kind of repeating myself sorry
2: <laughs> no it's 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 good it's it's fine yeah um that's definitely worth mentioning again in case anybody missed it yeah uh that's 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 an interesting story about the um how it went from the writing phase into the uh, the actual production but uh, yeah, you can it, it does feel a little bit like it's cobbled together certainly. Yeah. It, it does have that kind of feel it doesn't uh, cohese I guess as as the is the word I'm looking for. Um, but yeah, we will uh, move on to the casting. Of course, um, Roger Moore originally had a three-picture deal and that was uh, Live and Let Die, The Man with the Golden Gun and The Spy Who Loved Me. Those three films fulfilled his initial contract. And then after that, it was kind of a film-by-film basis, from what I understand. Moonraker and For Your Eyes Only, they were negotiating as they went along. And then he was not really, I guess he was a little reluctant to return uh, to the role again. And so there was uh, some sort of a a, a semi-public casting
1: <laughs> session i right. guess you would say <laughs> well yeah. well they, he signed on for moonraker very easily because yes. they had a big giant hit after spy who loved me and mm-hmm. everybody likes to continue a hit and they paid him well so that wasn't a problem when it came time to for your eyes only he started to I, you know and wisely so right the movie all of those films one after the other were just big hits and he wanted a piece of it so he they were protracted negotiations when they did for your eyes only, but eventually and famously the director, John Glenn was told to start testing other actors to play bond. But the, the, um, you know, apparently that was a pressure technique and it worked and Roger signed. But when it came time to do Octopussy, he really held out. I think in part because he wanted more money, which, which was fair. Again, these films were very big hits, but I think he was also starting to get tired because they these films are enormously hard work. Um, you know the average film shoots for two or three months. These films tended to shoot for six months or more. It's one of the reasons Sean Connery didn't really want to keep going after a while. And you know Bond is if he's not in every scene, he's in almost every scene. And and there's huge promotional responsibilities. So it's it's quite a quite a commitment, quite a lot of work. So I think there was sort of an element of that, and Roger I think wanted a lot of money in in order to resume. And at that point, Cubby Broccoli was not of a mind to um, to uh, give in where he was when they did free rides only, and they they've started screen testing for real possible replacements. And there were a couple of British actors and an Australian actor, but the most interesting person they. They screen tested was an American actor, and everybody probably knows this actor, James Brolin, um, who was a big TV star in the 70s and, and in the 80s. He did a TV show called Hotel, which was a hit. And also he's the current Mr. Barbra Streisand, um, and, <laughs> and, and and he's kind of had a nice uh, career as an older character actor now. But at the time, he he did a very extensive screen test. And there are rumors that he actually was signed to play the part. I'm not sure if that's true, but I know they got real close. And and he, if you if you look at the Octopussy Blu-ray, they have his screen test on there, which I thought was interesting that he gave permission for that. Um, and I, you know, the biggest problem for me is that he's not a British guy, and he do, he doesn't even play it with an accent. He just played it straightforward um and i'm not sure if that would have been the plan had they continued into the film or if they would have had him do it with an accent um and i i would say that he was better than you might expect i i didn't get a sense he would have been a terrific bond but he would have been a probably a credible person in the role as far as that one film went um but yeah so that was the most interesting thing but the main reason it all turned around was um at the time that they were preparing octopussy sean connery was preparing his return to the role in never say never again or what became never say never again um and uh they were both going to go into production at about the same time and the original plan was they were going to be released at the same time they were both going to be released in the summer of 1983 and um that didn't ended up not happening but that was the original idea and united artists basically felt that this was not the time to be launching a new actor in the role of james bond that if they were gonna hold their own against connery who Who you know a lot of people felt was the original bond or he was the original bond, they needed the current bond, and Roger was extraordinarily popular in the role at that point. People sort of forget now, but but it was a big deal to have a Roger Moore James Bond movie come out. So I think United Artists basically told Covey whatever it takes, uh, we need to have Roger in the role. And I think Roger certainly liked the money, but the other thing that i I always thought uh, swayed him a bit was that connery had made six bond films i'm sorry he'd made five bond films in the official series and i think roger wanted to go him one better and make six and i sort of think that's part of the reason he got swayed as well
2: yeah you're you're probably right about that mm-hmm. i would say and of course with never say never again being announced and yes. coming up in the fall of that year after octopussy uh, they they at least they had the good sense to release them uh give them some distance from each other
1: yes Uh, yes yeah
2: but uh yeah that that probably you know that that certainly played into it um i'm sure with him you know they it's better to i guess uh, go ahead and stick with an established bond as opposed to trying something something new when you've got the original bond yes (laughs) you know so
1: and the interesting part is, uh, it paid off because Octopussy did much better than Never Say Never Again. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a smart decision. However, it ended up coming down, you know. And um, the other big role, obviously, was Octopussy herself. And the person who was most associated with it originally was Faye Dunaway. They made a uh, very strong attempt to get her, but she was a big star and an Oscar winner, and she wanted a lot of money and. It was always Covey Broccoli's feeling that other than the person playing Bond audience, it didn't matter whether they had a star or not, um, because people tended to come for Bond and they tended to come for whoever the actor playing Bond was. So he was always reluctant to spend a lot of money on the rest of the cast. Um, and and I think you can see that in some of the leading ladies, like some of whom are are quite beautiful, but maybe not always the best actresses in the world. And, um, that's, that I think has a bit to do with, with the casting philosophy. So they tried for fade Dunaway, and, um, and that didn't work out. And the other person who was, um, considered in the running, because there was a one point in the final film, the character is written as, as at least a half British woman. Um, Uh, who just happens to live in india but but at a certain point the character was written as an indian woman and so they tried for persis kambada who had been in um, star trek the motion picture Mm -hmm. and um they had also they tried for a few other actresses mostly from britain but who were of south asian descent but that didn't work out either and finally they ended up with maude adams who, as most people know, had already appeared in a Bond film as um, Andrea Anders in The Man with the Golden Gun. She's, she was basically um, Scaramanga's uh, girlfriend, uh, Maul, basically, and she's killed by Scaramanga early on in the film. Um, Maud Adams was a former model, quite beautiful, and uh, she had been actually hired to perform in the screen tests with James Brolin. And the idea was they were looking at Brolin, but I guess when Cubby Broccoli saw the screen test, he remembered her, obviously, from Man with the Golden Gun, but also really liked her. And I know they had actually, the whole Bond organization, had really enjoyed working with her the first time around. So Cubby came up with the idea that why don't we just give the part to Maude? So that's how Maud Adams ended up becoming Octopussy. And she was she, her career, her career after Man with the Golden Gun, you know, was a bit up and down because, you know, she maybe wasn't the most incredible actress. She did a good job in most of the things she did. But she was pretty hot at that moment because she had appeared in a film called Tattoo. <laughs> I was going to mention
2: that. Right.
1: <laughs> yes. And um Quite a scandal in its day, a racy movie about an insane tattoo artist who is obsessed with this woman and, I don't know, kidnaps her. And it's 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 very raunchy and very exploitative. And and it, it actually was one of those movies that made a big deal in the press And in all of the advanced publicity and the only place it didn't make a big deal was at the box office. It was kind of a flop, but um, but it it gave her a lot of notoriety. And I imagine that played a big part in in having her join the film as well.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I would say so. And uh, thankfully, they didn't uh, they they decided to go against uh, keeping the character Indian and going with the. uh, the type of thing that Peter Sellers did in the party that
1: would have been really a, uh... yes. Yeah. Yeah. They, well, the, the nice thing about Octopussy is they cast Indian actors in the Indian roles, which yeah, was good. That was <laughs> because, good, Yeah. yeah Cause uh, that, that was an era where you could have gone either way. <laughs> That's what <laughs> so, I was getting at. Yeah. 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 yeah man, so. Um, and the, the, the highest profile person in the film in terms of, of the Indian cast was, VJ Armitrage, who was a famous tennis player, not an actor, but a tennis player with a great open personality. And I, and Cubby Brockley was famously a tennis fan. So I, I think they met somewhere and they decided to put uh, VJ in the film. And um, he's a great addition to it. He's just got a lot of energy and kind mm-hmm. of a great big open personality. And he, you know, what's interesting is usually when Bond goes to a, to a foreign country, He'll meet up with one representative from that country who acts as his, you know, his guide through whatever it is he's got to go through. And when they cast VJ, um, they actually had a character written in uh, who was supposed to be the the uh, British Secret Service representative, and that part gets very reduced, and they give all of the they give most of that character's action to VJ um and you, it doesn't really make much difference in the movie but if you're if you're familiar with the bond formula it's interesting watching the poor guy who was really supposed to be the sidekick kind of just show up once in a while and say a few things and leave and and the focus is mostly on vj but he's a great presence and Again, I don't know if he was a great actor, but you didn't need him to be because and he plays what is Bond always has, what they call the sacrificial victim. There's usually some aid to Bond in one of the in, in the film and he meets an untimely death. And that's VJ's, uh fate in the film. And you certainly miss him and feel bad when he's gone. You know,
2: yeah, yeah. His his departure is is felt as as it were. I, I would to- totally agree with that. Yeah. Yes. Uh interesting that Pam Greer apparently turned down an offer to play
1: a Bond girl in this film as well. That would have been interesting. I have heard that. I'm not sure what part that was, but Supposedly. I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other the other discovery of the film was Christina Wayborn, another um Swedish model who became an actress. Um and she plays sort of the, the bad guy's girlfriend in this film, kind of mm-hmm. the part that Maud Adams played man with the golden gun and she's quite striking like she's got a kind of i mean she's a beautiful woman but she's got kind of an off kilter you can't quite read her personality that i think works very well uh for the part she's playing in the film and uh you know she's she she's the villainess who seduces bond and you certainly don't mind when you're watching the film you know <laughs> yeah. this is true this is very true, true. Yeah. yep And of uh, course, the the main villain was Louis Jourdan, famous French actor mm -hmm. and very big movie star in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, His star had been fading at that point. He was kind of in that love boat phase of a lot of the older stars careers, but also a friend of Covey Broccoli's. And they brought him in and he plays Kamal Khan, who is the main villain. Um, Stephen Burkoff plays the Russian mad Russian general and if you've ever seen any of Stephen Burkhoff's one-man shows, um, you would cast him to play a mad Russian general, so he, he was sort of perfect for that part. And the final main member of the cast is um, a famous uh, Bollywood heartthrob, Kabir Betty, who plays the... Uh, the uh, I always like it. He refers to himself as the movie's physical heavy because he's uh, he's the guy, he's the muscle, he's the jaws or the odd job of this film and uh and he's quite striking in his role as well
2: yeah i i would tend to agree mm-hmm. yeah that's uh yeah that it's can. well i guess the the other thing i was going to mention too before i get uh into the filming of it was that it's the first film to feature robert brown as m following you're right. the death of bernard lee uh yes in
1: 1981 yeah. Mm-hmm. Bernard Lee played the part through every film through Moonraker, passed away. They did not recast him for Free Rise Only out of respect. And then they recast the part with Robert Brown, of, of one of those sort of uh, very dependable British character actors who had actually previously appeared in The Spy Who Loved Me. He played Admiral Hargreaves. uh in the opening scenes when the Navy is facing the theft of their nuclear submarine. Yes. And one of the big debates among Bond fans for many years is, was Robert Brown playing the same character as Bernard Lee or was he, or had Admiral Hargreeves been um, promoted to M uh, after the spy who loved me? Because traditionally the secret service in Britain gets its, its officers from the Navy. Um, and, and that argument went on for 20 years until finally, I believe in the last, uh, Daniel Craig, James Bond movie, there was a picture on the wall of of Robert Brown and also a picture on the wall of Bernard Lee. So I guess they are supposed to be two different characters. (laughs) (laughs) The debate goes on.
2: (laughs) Yeah. That's true. Yeah, I had not thought about that, but that's uh, that's that's a valid point. Um, I, yeah. I, I'm
1: getting deep into Bond nerddom here. So, <laughs> well, why not? Why not? That's yeah, what we're all yeah. about
2: here. Yeah, <laughs> and you were talking about Louis Jordan. Uh, it's worth mentioning that just the year prior to the release of uh, Octopussy. He was uh, in the Swamp Thing.
1: Yes, yes, he was. Which, which I'm gonna guess based on everything I know about Louis Erbom, he did not consider his finest moment. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> right. So I, I think he was probably glad when someone asked him, "Hey, do you want to be in a high-profile movie that has an actual budget?" Yeah, exactly. And yet he returned for the sequel
2: seven years later. So
1: that is true. That is true. <laughs>
2: I guess if the if the, if the uh, check is large enough, you'll do
1: whatever you. Do. <laughs> whatever you got to do. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: Well, uh, so we'll get into the actual production. The filming of Octopussy began in West Berlin on the tenth of August, nineteen eighty-two, with the uh, the scene in which Bond arrives at Checkpoint Charlie, I believe. Right. hmm and, uh, and then it went on from there. I can, you can talk a little bit about that if you want to. Yeah. Well.
1: They, yeah. Um, that was. Um west berlin and they did a few other bits in west berlin most of the german footage because the movie basically uh it it has a beginning roughly in london and then goes to india and then finally goes to west berlin for the climax uh and then returns to india for the very ending um but most of the of the berlin of most of the german uh material was actually shot in england um, because at, at that point they obviously weren't going to let people film in East Berlin and, um, and they mostly dummied everything up in, in the British countryside. The railway is the nain Valley railway, which is a famous historical preservation of, of old train tracks and things. Um, so they, most of that is, is England uh, they they went to India first, um, filmed most of the Indian material, and then came back to London and split their time between various places around the country, including uh, the air base, which is supposed to be an American air base in Germany, is um, actually Upper Hayford. Uh, the RAF base um, it, which also had American presence on there and I know that because one of my brothers was in the Air Force and he was stationed at Upper Hayford uh, many years after they made Octopussy but apparently they were still talking about it because they got to they got to be in the James Bond movie and they loved it um, so yeah so that the filming and then quite a bit of filming um, on the 007 stage in in London uh, at Pinewood Studios the whole ending where the, the female circus attacks the, uh, the bad guys headquarters, that's all on the 7 stage. And, um, yeah, so they, they, they got around, but kept it contained because again, budget was a bit of a consideration, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, I mean, you know, I, for what the film looks like, I mean, you, you wouldn't know that they were sparing any money whatsoever.
1: Yeah. The, <laughs> <and> they, <laughs> well, that's it. The, industry, the, the, the Indian footage was paid for by the frozen yeah, UA funds, and then they filmed everything else mostly in England, which kept the cost down because yeah. when you have a British crew filming in England, it's much cheaper than if you have them, mo- you know, uh, mm-hmm. far away. So,
2: yeah, yeah, that's true. So, uh, yeah, and and they say that uh, some of the crew had some problems, dietary problems in uh, India. Including yes. Roger Moore with the uh,
0: <laughs>
1: yes
2: <laughs> sanitation can be questionable uh, depending on what on what part of India
1: you were and I'm sure well, it was even uh, worse then so <laughs> oh yeah well you know different different challenges whenever you're somewhere else that's <laughs> so right It's yeah. just similar problems when they went to Egypt for the Spy Who Loved Me but yes. uh, yeah but um, they filmed um, the. The, the hotel in the film where a lot of the action, the Indian hotel where a lot of things take place, my understanding was an actual Maharaja's palace, and they um, the, it was it was a private residence that they were uh, turning into a hotel, and now I guess it is a hotel, and when you go there, its its nickname is the Octopussy Hotel. So again, for, 40 years on, the film still, still has a hold on a lot of the places that it was filmed, which is kind of cool.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that 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 is. And uh of course the opening sequence is pretty spectacular with the uh yeah. the plane that has the collapsible wings, but in this yeah. day and age obviously it yeah. would just be uh computerized and CGI'd, all that type of stuff. So
1: yeah, it's it, yeah it's a different it's a, it, was refer- it was a it, they called it a BD mini jet is what it was. Yeah. With the you're right, with the flaps that folded up and you yep. could put it in the back of a truck or whatever. Um, that whole se- well, not the sequence itself, but the um the 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 idea of using the beating mini jet actually began with Moonraker. That was originally how Bond was supposed to find the bad guy's headquarters, uh which in the in the finished film, he's driving a boat uh, over over a waterfall, but apparently originally he was supposed to go over the waterfall and and activate the mini jet and fly around the waterfall using that. And for whatever reason, it didn't work out. But they brought it back for Octopussy. It was it was it was the sequence that made up the trailer for the most part, and um, it got audiences very excited because people had never seen anything like that before. <laughs> so it was pretty cool.
2: Yeah, and you know when you when you look back at at, at stuff like that that was shot practically, uh, it, it really does there's something about it that just can't be touched. You know, it's
1: well, that whole sequence is sort of a great tribute to, uh, I think traditional old fashioned movie making and Mm -hmm. also the bond people in particular, because first of all, it's a very clever idea. It's a lot of fun, but it's a wonderful mixture of an actual mini jet that is being flown. Actually, I believe it was over Arizona because if you look at some of the background when the plane is flying, it, it looks like American desert, not Cuba, which is where it's supposed to be taking place. Um, but it's actual pilots flying real planes, um, you know, under bridges and, and over desert and then mixed with miniatures of the planes. There's a wonderful there's a scene where they shoot a heat seeking missile at the at the jet. And it and it locks on to the to the wake of the jet and Bond's trying to shake it and he can't. And the way they did that was they took a little mini um, missile and they attached it with a filament to the back of the model plane and then just flew it around so it looked like the the missile was following the plane when actually it was being towed by the plane. Um, and then the 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 height of or the the the, the climax of the sequence. The setup is that James Bond is sent to destroy this uh, experimental aircraft in this Cuban um, Air Force base. And he is interrupted before he can blow it up and captured and, and hauled away. And then manages to get away from his captors and get into the mini jet and fly away. And your initial idea is, well, he's going to escape. But he also has his mission to complete. So he ends up flying through the hangar that he originally was trying to infiltrate and the missile follows him into the hangar and he zooms out the door in the plane and the missile blows up the hangar so he ends up completing his mission but what's great about that sequence is some of it is the real jet um, flying flying uh, across a horizon and then they did a miniature foreground miniature of the airplane hangar so it looks like the plane is flying out of the doors of the hangar, actually in one end and out the other. It never comes anywhere near it. That's a foreground miniature. When the plane is flying through the hangar, they got an actual jet body and put it on a pole arm and attached the pole arm to, if I'm not mistaken, a jaguar, but I might be wrong about the actual car. And then they drove the car through the hangar, and they had all sorts of things in the way to hide the fact that it was on a pole. If you look really carefully, you can see the pole and you can see the car. But if you're not, you know, if you're not paying close attention, it's completely convincing. And then when, when Bond finally does blow it up, it's one of John Richardson's amazing miniatures. And I don't, you know, uh, there are many, there are a couple of legendary British special effects guys. And one of them is John Richardson, uh, son of Cliff Richardson, who was another of the legendary British uh, practical effects guys, and Richard—it was Richardson's first Bond film—and just that sequence alone, uh, he certainly earned earned his legendary status. You know.
2: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It really is, and it just uh, when you see it, it just—I don't—it makes me wistful uh, for yeah. the, the way films used to be produced. Uh, you know, in those times and uh you know when you when you see that it's it's um certainly um a good example of a bygone era in filmmaking i guess that's the best way to put it yeah
1: (laughs) you're right this this is a nostalgic tug unfortunately Uh, whenever you see that stuff absolutely
2: (laughs) yeah it really is yeah and uh, i will mention a uh, a goof in the film that uh, some people have brought up online and it's worth mentioning i guess it's the uh the cyclist that's seen passing through the middle of a sword (laughs) fight during the baby taxi chase sequence. Yes. And uh, it it turns out he really was a bystander who passed through the shot, oblivious to the
1: filming. And uh, his, he, he, he wasn't gonna captain. stop yeah that's right <laughs> yeah. yep <laughs> yeah. that, that's a fascinating sequence because the, the thing about octopussy is um it was the second bond film directed by john glenn mm-hmm. who had started as an editor and second unit director on the bond films he did um editing and second unit on on her Majesty's secret service and then returned for spy who loved me and moonraker and he's the guy who shot the famous opening from Spy Who Loved Me of Bond skiing off the mountain and then having his uh, British flag uh, parachute open and all of that and um, he was promoted to main director on For Your Eyes Only and to my mind did a very good job Um, he he He's, he was not big and flashy like some of the earlier Bond directors, mm-hmm. and, he, and he had a low-key approach that I think was absolutely perfect for For Your Eyes Only. I do think the problem, though, is that he two things. The first is for reasons that I'm not quite sure. After the success of For Your Eyes Only, they decided to put more comedy into Octopussy. Like there is humor in For Your Eyes Only, but there's not out-and-out out comedy. Mm -hmm. um and there's a lot of comedy in octopussy which i thought was an odd creative choice given they had kind of taken a critical bashing for moonraker which is a very comedic film um and the whole idea was well we're getting back to the real essence of they used to call it gun and run spy thrillers um and and they'd had such a hit with eyes only that that I'm not sure why they decided to to go with the comedy in Octopussy. The problem is that John Glenn, I don't think was a particularly good director of comedy. His, his his comic sense was very broad, and I think you almost needed somebody to work against the comedy to to make the film to make it work in the film. And um, the other thing is is Octopussy is a place where. John Glenn, I think, showed his second unit director roots because whenever the stunt sequences happen, and they're, some of them are quite terrific, but mm-hmm. you always get the feeling that the movie is stopping to show you the stunts. Like, it doesn't quite feel integrated into the film itself. And honestly, I do think that's a problem Glenn had for the rest. Of, he directed all of the Bond films of the 80s, and with the exception of... The Living Daylights, which was the first Timothy Dalton one, I do think you see these two problems I'm mentioning uh, continue as the series goes on, where he just had a lot of trouble. He, the comedy didn't really work for me in his films, and and the second unit stuff always seemed very self-conscious to me. And, and I didn't feel that way about For Your Eyes Only, but I felt like that really started to creep in in Octopussy. And the other problem is that they Like we talked about earlier, they were making two different kinds of films. And so you have the outrageous stuff, the, the crazy fantasy of the all-girl circus smuggling ring and circuses and, and stunts on trains and uh, attacks in hot air balloons and all sorts of things like that. And then you have this more serious thriller about Bond trying to stop an explosion on, a, on, a, on an air base. And I think Glenn does very well with the straightforward stuff. I, he actually has one of my favorite Bond sequences. And I think his, one of his best sequences in the very beginning of the film, uh, a British agent disguised as a circus clown escapes over the wall of the circus. And he's got information and, and, a, and a prop that he needs to get to headquarters. And he's chased through the woods by a pair of twin knife throwers. And the sequence is wonderfully photographed, wonderfully directed, very atmospheric. And when you hear like, oh, it's a guy dressed as a clown, you think it's silly, but it's actually eerie and creepy and quite, quite effective. And I just wish that maybe, I think it's one of Glenn's best sequences. And I just wish he had perhaps applied that same discipline to the rest of the film. (laughs) I, I think, you know, um, There's also another great sequence that's very Ian Fleming and and I think Glenn does very well, which is the Sotheby's sequence uh, where Bond essentially forces the villain to pay way more for one of the Fabergé eggs. That's the target of the plot um, by by kind of subtly bidding up everything. It's very well done. Very. It it has uh, reminiscences of uh, North by Northwest, you know, which also had a great auction sequence. And it's very tense and it's very smart and it's very well done. And then you have the India sequence that you're referring to where they're being chased through the streets and Bond jumps out of the the tuk-tuk and runs into, I guess, what is supposed to be a festival or something. And then you just have one bad joke after another. He's pulling swords out of you know sword swallowers mouths to fight the bad guys and they're fighting over a guy laying on a bed of nails who's looking very nervous so you're doing all this sort of cliched stereotypical um indian riffs i guess um (laughs) and and jokes and people doing silly things and you're like what happened to the great discipline of those first 20 minutes yeah (laughs) so, so and and then there's there's And then the other sequence is uh, at one point Bond is chased by the villain in an elephant hunt, which doesn't really make much sense. Bond escapes and the bad guy wants to catch him. So he spends six hours organizing a giant elephant hunt through the woods, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and and Bond runs into tigers who he makes sit down and uh, he swings through the trees with Tarzan yells and you're like wait a minute what happened to that really cool first 20 minutes of this movie but uh i whatever yeah. <laughs> but but so the the tone was not very consistent i guess is what i'm getting at
2: yeah and, and is this the first instance of breaking the fourth wall in a james bond film because uh, i know vj plays the uh the james <laughs> bond theme on a recorder while he's disembarking he from the boat yeah in the harbor yeah
1: yeah. I uh, I actually think the first instance is in on a Majesty Secret Service when um, George Lazenby turns to the camera and says this never happened to the other fella. Oh yeah, that's uh, right, that's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I, but yeah, I do I think, I think we're we're pretty close uh, when when you get to Octopussy. But yeah, they plays the James Bond theme, and then. Um, and all of there's a number of sort of sexual jokes that are all kind of like very twelve years old. Like there's a <laughs> uh, the girls are the girls from Octopussy Circus are rowing a boat, and the person in charge of making them row is going in out in out, and I guess we're supposed to think that's funny. I don't know. It's a little smarmy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, so it's it's just odd. It's it's like it's got moments of wonderful tension, and the action at the. At, you know, the, the movie gets its hits because Bond is uh racist to the rescue at the end dressed in a clown outfit. And when people saw the original, um, the original stills of that, they're like, you know, the Roger Moore movies had already been sort of attacked for being too comedic. And when people saw him dressed as a clown, like, well, see, now they're just going full silly, but actually it's a pretty good sequence because he's trying to get to this bomb and he disguises himself as a clown. And there's a weird, um, contradiction between sort of the silliness of the settings and the seriousness of the purpose that works very well. But then in the end, he attacks the bad guy in his castle and Q flies in in a giant hot air balloon and, Uh, girls are coming on the queue because I go, I don't know why. (laughs) And, and and John Glenn can never resist uh, when a weird thing happens, having a character drinking and then looking at the bottle, you know, like, Oh, am I really drunk? You know, is this really happening? (laughs) Like he does that joke, like in every movie that he made. Um, And it's, it's sort of like, I don't know what you got. like. Now it's a Benny Hill sketch, you know, before it was a really good thriller. And so it's a very
2: odd film from
1: that point of view. (laughs) So,
2: yeah that's the old uh the the old ploy that richard lester used in superman 2 where
1: uh yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and you know, that Superman 3 and Octopus are being filmed at the same time. <laughs> and, and there's kind of a very funny picture of Christopher Reeve. I guess he came over to check out what was going on. So he's standing on the set in his Superman costume next to Roger Moore in his clown outfit. And you're like, well, there's a, there's a picture for the ages. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But, yeah, but what a wonderful time, right? You had Superman movies and James Bond movies being made on the same lot at the same time. I'm like, like, man, I, I would have loved to have been there. You
2: know? Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. Just, just to have been a fly on the wall would have been amazing. Would have been amazing, yeah. yeah. So uh, we will talk about the music as we uh, get uh, kind of wrap things up a little bit here. Yeah. But, but the music was done by John Barry. This is post-production we're talking about here, of course. And um, the, he had tax problems, quote unquote, that uh, caused him to not be able to do the music for For Your Eyes Only, which was done by Bill Conti, but uh, he he returns here, and thankfully he didn't bring out the sitars or any of that type of stuff. (laughs) Uh, He resisted
1: the opportunity. A a little bit of whirling dervish music right at the start of the India sequence, (laughs) but other than that, no, it's, I mean, Barry's Bond scores, too, go in two phases if you pay attention um, to what he does. When Connery was, was, playing bond the scores are very brass heavy lots of horns lots of and and very driving with their beats and it's it's sort of the classic bond music as people tend to remember it when roger moore came in he changed the style and that's when he adapted the style or adopted the style that he later kind of made his hallmark in the rest of his career a lot of very flowing strings and and very um the pacing he took the pacing way down, which had an interesting effect of, in a way, enhancing the action to some degree. Um, so there, his his Roger Moore Bond scores are more, I think, flowing and elegant, and his Connery scores are more sort of driving and and, and action packed. Yeah. Um, I I don't know that Octopussy is his best Roger Moore score. Uh, that might be Moonraker. Um, but it's 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 one. It's a good one. You know, it's uh it, like I feel like the, you can say that about Octopussy in every respect. It's not one of the best James Bond movies. It's far from the worst. It's kind of right there in the middle. And I feel like that's probably true for Barry's score as well. Yeah.
2: And given what was coming next uh, on the uh, James Bond platter, <laughs> and we'll uh, we'll just use that as a teaser because hopefully in right. two more years we'll be able to, to do another one. We'll of do these. another, <laughs> yeah. sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, so yeah, that was uh, there was a one more time out for Roger Moore as James Bond, but that's an, another story for another day. As it was, yes. I, I am a big fan of the theme from this film, All Time High. I remember. When Mm -hmm. it came out, remember it vividly uh, being on the radio. It didn't chart very highly on the Billboard Pop charts, but did quite well on the Adult Contemporary Singles charts. Uh, I know it um, spent four weeks at number one on that, and it was later used uh, terrifically, I think, as a joke in the film uh, Ted with uh, with Mark Wahlberg. (laughs) Yeah, where he uh, he's obviously such an octopusy fan, and so to woo his girlfriend back, he sings uh all-time <laughs> high and uh it's uh there's a there's just a great joke that, that references this song and if you're a fan of the film you'll you'll get it as i did i laughed quite heartily yeah. <laughs> as when i saw it in the theater so uh yeah so so very uh, kudos to uh to Seth MacFarlane for putting that in there, so yes. <laughs> I guess he's a fan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but the lyricist Tim Rice uh, composed the lyrics for that, and uh, it was uh, it's one of the the few of the musical themes in the James Bond series that uh, the song title uh, doesn't mention. Uh, the song doesn't mention the uh, uh, the film's title.
1: In, yeah, in well, the Tim, title Tim Rice gone. famously said that he goes. Well, we were really stuck. He goes because. How are you, how you going to write a song with the word octopus? <laughs> <you know. laughs> but then later, he said, years after he said, because, you know, the, the song you're referring to all time high. It did as you as you were describing, did very well in, in its in its realm. But um, I don't know that it's considered one of the top of the Bond themes. You know, it's, again, mm-hmm. a kind of a middle one. And Tim Rice said something famous, he said, maybe we should have tried to come up with a song called Octopusy <laughs> just to see what would have happened. <laughs> so, and, you know, that title was, as one can imagine, since we keep laughing every time we say it, uh, quite controversial. Um, it was controversial in, in, in when it was the title of an Ian Fleming short story, but in a much smaller way, because those books had a smaller profile than the films but i do remember i was sitting in the theater at the end of for your eyes only and um you know that, that was the days when they would announce the title of the next film um at the end of the film so it came up it said uh, the end of for your eyes only james bond will return in octopussy and I was sitting next to my sister, who is no prude and is not somebody who is going to easily be shocked and offended. And she just turned and she goes, there's no way they release a movie at <laughs> that time. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, are you kidding me? <laughs> and, and they, they did. released it. Yeah. <laughs> and and. Cubby Broccoli, you know, he was very funny about it, but he was, you know, he was like, look, you're talking about it, aren't you? <laughs> because if we called the movie Octopus, would anybody be talking about it? That's so, right. yeah, you know, and, uh, I don't know. Is it off color? I guess so. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah.
2: It's, uh, it definitely was a catchy title. That's for sure. And one of the ones <laughs> that people certainly remember. Right.
1: Um, and, and the film was, um, One of the bigger hits. Uh, I don't think it was the top grossing one. Uh, I I think Moonraker still held that title for quite a while, but it was it it did very, very well. Um, I think the thing that I'm complaining about, I think the audience is actually really liked. I think they liked the mixture of sort of action and comedy. Mm -hmm. I don't think they were sitting there like me wondering about the clashing tones, you know, because I think I might be a few people worrying about things like that. But, um, you know, but the movie was quite a hit and, uh, did very well. It did so well that it, it, um, made it really hard to not have Roger Moore in the next one. But as you said, that, that is the story for another day. Yeah.
2: A very interesting one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: But, um, you know, and and it's, it's a, it's one of those bond films you can rewatch. Like I said, I never really can follow the plot. I, 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 they, they got me about halfway and then I get lost, but I also realize it probably doesn't matter so much. Um, I think the locations are gorgeous Peter Hunt um was the, not Peter Hunt I'm sorry Peter Lamont was the production designer for the second time he made his debut on For Your Eyes Only and he was not like the previous the most famous Bond production designer is of course Ken Adam who did those kind of amazing fantasy sets and um Peter Peter Lamont was not a person who was necessarily interested in that his sets were much more realistic and down to earth but he does a wonderful fantasy uh, Russian briefing room that's as good as anything Ken Adam did. He designed Octopussy's wonderful octopus bed, which is really cool looking. Um, and there's just a kind of, a, of, of an elegance about the production design in the film. And it was also the second Bond film photograph by Alan Hume, who, again, not one of my favorite DPs. Uh, I, I tend to find his work a bit flat but in Octopussy, perhaps it was inspired by the Indian locations or the light in India, but there's a wonderful, the lighting is wonderful in the film. There's there's a real elegance to all of the Indian sequences um, that's as good as anything in any of the best of the Bond films. I said, not a giant Alan Young fan, but I really like his work in that picture.
2: Yeah, I, w- I would agree. Absolutely. And of course, uh, this one being filmed in... Uh in Panavision as many of them yeah. were and so mm-hmm. the, uh, making good use of the widescreen frame as it were so, yes yeah so yes it uh wound up grossing 187.5 million uh worldwide that is and 67.8 in the US and Canada against uh never say never again which only did around yeah. 55 million in the US and Canada so uh, yeah. It definitely got the leg up on uh, the competing bond film uh, and and
1: we should point out for the modern audience that those numbers were really good back then yes. <laughs> like, yes. yeah now now you know 187 million who cares but back then that was that was very impressive yes <laughs> so, get yeah. out your uh, inflation calculator
2: kids uh, <laughs> and uh, go check it and you'll see what we're yeah. talking about so <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I think most of the contemporary reviews at the time, uh, mostly positive. You know, yep. I, mm-hmm. I think it was mm-hmm. around three. In fact, I know Leonard Malton, three and a half stars. I remember. He yeah.
1: Was.
2: Yeah, but I know Siskel, three stars out of four. I believe it was. I think. Uh, I think Roger Ebert was kind of ho hum on it. Didn't hate it. Didn't love it. Kind of what you were saying. Uh, kind of in the middle. So yeah, but generally good reviews. Um, so yeah.
1: I, I th- it, it's hard for people to remember now, because I, I think if you've come of age with um, Daniel Craig, and if you if you are like we're in an era where people take their um, their their franchise material very seriously, and a lot of folks have trouble with the Roger Moore era of Bond because it's lighter, it's more of a romp. But it but what's important to emphasize is. That was what audiences really craved back then, and um, and he did it really wonderfully well. Like his films in general outgrossed Sean Connery's, and that's not to say that he's a better Bond or a worse Bond or whatever. Like I think that's a tricky conversation to have, but they were wonderful entertainments. They were a little less cutting edge and daring than the Connery ones, but they were big. Sort of I, I think Time referred to them as an action adventure souffle and and i think that's a really good description of Roger's era and he was incredibly popular in that role and i think i think its positive reception at the time was probably for the same things i'm complaining about a little bit i think people really liked the romp aspect of it and i i don't think it mattered to them that the tone was all over the place they were just so happy to be having a great James Bond adventure with with a James Bond they all loved, so who cared if it went this way or that way? And and I think I think that was that was a real engine for that series that I think modern audiences may not quite get a hold of, you know.
2: I think you're right. That's a good that's a good summation. Yeah, I, guess, <laughs> I guess we can leave it at that. But yeah, this is right. our uh, 40th anniversary look at the behind-the-scenes goings-on of Octopussy. And uh, this has been a pleasure, as always, to talk to you and, and uh, share some of the trivia and the little-known stories about what happened behind the scenes. Yes.
1: Uh, I really appreciate you having me back. I, I always enjoy these talks, and I enjoy these, uh, these, these deep dives into these crazy movies that we love so much.
0: Straight.